So today, brothers and sisters, we will be concluding our study of the second epistle to the Thessalonians. And Lord willing, beginning next week, May 2nd, we will launch our study of the book of Genesis. So I encourage you to join us each week as we make our way through uh, this book of beginnings. As this book tells the story of how it all began. And it's a, it's a great book. So, and there's lots of there's lots of stuff in those first 11 chapters especially to really uh, wrap your mind around, to stretch your faith, to stretch your understanding. And so, please join us. But for today, we're going to wrap up 2 Thessalonians with these concluding verses uh, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. Even these closing remarks. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And our mind is blown by the proclamation of peace. And our hearts yearn for it but our hearts struggle to appropriate it. Lord, help us for the sake of Christ. Amen. All right, so as you know, we have been studying the second epistle to the Thessalonians for the past few months. And about this time last year, we studied the first Thessalonian letter. And so I guess today concludes our study of the Thessalonian correspondence. These two books were the arguably or, or, or probably the first two letters that Paul wrote, the first two letters uh, that are scripture that Paul wrote. And he wrote it to this church that had begun under very uh, stressful circumstances. In a whirlwind trip through Thessalonica, he had established a church in just a matter of weeks. And... Mere months later, he's checking on them, and he's getting news, positive reports about their, their growth and godliness. And so he writes an encouraging letter in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, just a few weeks or a few months later, he gets another report that they're still growing strong, but persecution has increased. The pressure has only ramped, and, and not, not just persecution, but as, as they've lived life a little bit, just the stuff of life has started accumulating. And these are all roadblocks and obstacles to our continued enjoyment of the Lord. And Paul wants to encourage them and, 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 and help them push through with faithfulness the struggles they're going through. And he does so by continually making reference 
to the Lord, to the Lord in his sovereign goodness, to the Lord in his sovereign lordship. And we've seen in 2 Thessalonians in particular how understanding the sovereign lordship of Christ grounds us and guides us in the midst of intense difficulty. How it provides the shaping interpretive, interpreting narrative for us as we experience and view all of the turmoil going on about us. Turmoil. Isn't that a word that describes our age? Turmoil. It's, it's something that I think actually plagues the, the, the human experience. If, if you're a, stu a student of history, uh, I mean, it's, it's simultaneously horrific, sad, awesome. That the lasting testament of human civilization is violence. If you think about it, wars never cease, do they? Struggling never ceases. Even politics, it's been said that war is the continuation of politics by other means, but that implies that politics itself is a form of war. It's a form of peaceful outmaneuvering one another. It's a peaceful conflict, conflict, turmoil. Even our medicine is advanced because of war. War is just conflict, violence. And, and, and it's easy to see the big stuff, but as we saw in James 4 a few minutes ago, that conflict that we see out here is the fruit of conflict in here. How many of us so often struggle with inner turmoil, conflict within us about what we're doing. We, within each of us, we, we have this impulse, thanks to our first father, this impulse to assert ourselves as sovereign over our sphere, to be like God. But we, each of us, have an acute, intuitive awareness of our finitude. And we know that there are other people who stand in our way. We struggle with the impersonal forces, those circumstances of life that seem to be arrayed against us to keep us from manifesting and increasing our power, our prestige, our comfort. How many of us have laid in bed even struggling against God's plan for us? We want to assert our autonomy, but we feel in everything an acute awareness of our own limitations. And so there's turmoil and there's struggle. And there's strife. But you know what? I don't think there's any one of you who disagrees with that. Because we know it's true. But I was sitting there 
watching National Geographic. That's one of the plus things of the Apple or, or, or uh, Disney Plus is they have all these National Geographic. And I'm watching National Geographic, and it's like, it's not just people. Animals, the animal world is just saturated with violence. Everything is violence. They fight to mate. They fight to feed. They fight to, to have territory. Everything is violence. Conflict pervades the world. And did you know that that all makes sense? Given how the earth was subjected to futility when Adam fell. When Adam fell, everything was broken. And so conflict, discord, this is the characteristic of life in this fallen age. It wasn't meant to be. We all want peace. In fact, one of the great religions of the world, older than Christianity, if you want to date it formally, Buddhism, it, it's seeking peace. Now, Buddhism postulates that you have inner peace through detachment. That is, if you stop wanting things, you won't be disappointed by anything. That, that's in a nutshell. So live this, live this aloof life of emotional detachment from desire, and that'll free you from pain and heartache. The Greeks went a slightly different direction, and it's the direction that, that shaped Western civilization, the rise of Stoicism with its indifference and ambivalence towards circumstances and, and how this frees us from, from the ups and downs of responding to all these stimuli that are out and within. And this promises peace, but of course, peace is elusive. No one, no one, none of these gurus, none of these philosophers have attained it. Don't believe me? Who are the ones who came up with martial arts? The Buddhists. They go to war. Don't let them fool you. Conflict pervades the human experience. So I was struck by verse 16. When Paul, having addressed this church that's under duress, this church that has seen its persecutions intensify, this church which is under duress because they've been informed erroneously, but they were informed that the, the apostle was saying that the day of the Lord was upon them, and so they were expecting Jesus to come any moment, and he needs to still their faith. And, and, and they're being disturbed by the fact that there are those in their midst who are being idle, that they are... They are not walking in an ordered manner. And so what's happening is now the church is being distracted and its resources are being depleted to support people who are not working to support themselves. And so Paul writes to steady this. He wants to inject and remind them 
of peace. And so here at the end, he says, may the Lord of peace himself grant you peace at all times in every way. And I was struck by that. The Lord of peace. In Isaiah 9, hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, Isaiah 9, and the prophet announces the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, who is, as he is introduced, the Prince of Peace. He comes that wars may cease, that strivings may stop, that the inner anxiety, the inner turmoil, the discord would stop and that we might find rest. So he's announced as the Prince of Peace and at the incarnation of the Son of God, what is heralded by the angels? Peace on earth. Breaking into history, breaking into this realm in which violence and conflict are the status quo, comes the eternally blissful, impassable one. And he is here in 2 Thessalonians proclaimed not merely the prince of peace. What is a prince? An heir to the throne. And what is Jesus having ascended victoriously? He's the king on the throne. And so he is pronounced Lord of peace. He has peace within himself. Contemplate now, dear Christian, the glorious mystery of the Godhead. Jesus, the impassable one, not impossible, impassable. God is at all times at perfect peace. Without any discord within, he's never under stress or duress. He's never worried. He's never anxious. God is never fearful. He's never fretful. He's never threatened. He is always perfectly calm, tranquil, content. God is content. There are no surprises for his omniscience. No challenges for his immutability. There are no threats to his omnipotence. There are no usurpers to his sovereignty. He has no doubts to cloud his wisdom, nor has he sinned to stain his holiness. And brothers and sisters, even in his wrath, even in his wrath, he is clear, controlled, calm, and confident. He is the God of peace. And Jesus is the God of peace incarnate and he comes as the harbinger of peace he comes as the source of peace indeed brothers and sisters 
he comes that we might have peace. In the midst of a world clamoring, in the midst of a heart that is so restless that we hear its buzz all the time, contemplate the glory, contemplate the majesty of your Savior, the impassable one. But second here, we see the basis of the peace that is to be ours. So the source is the Lord of peace himself. The basis, as we see in the last verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The basis of peace is grace. It's true. At the beginning, Adam fell and the world fell into futility. And conflict now pervades. Our hearts are restless. In fact, there's no peace available in the natural world because of the animosity and the deadness within our hearts. Consider Isaiah 57, 20, and 21. Write it down because it characterizes the world. It characterizes, unfortunately, our own hearts all too often. What does the prophet say in Isaiah 57, 20, 21? The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. They're like the raging sea. Their hearts are constantly churning. Does that describe you? You who have been illumined and the eyes of your heart has been opened, do you still struggle with living in the pattern of the old man, in the way of futility? Or have you appropriated the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? You see, he comes that the principal struggle we are in may be resolved that we might be reconciled to God. That is your chief problem, is you are at war with your creator. A hopelessly futile war, but we fight it nonetheless in Adam. And Jesus comes that we might be reconciled, that we might lay down our swords, lay, dropping our arms because he's a gracious God who takes traitors and turns them into his beloved children. And then working out from there, Almighty God doesn't just make us his children, though he does, but he makes us a family. And so as we see in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, he, he, he takes those natural barriers of conflict and division that are between people, and in Christ, he tears it all down. And he brings us together in one man, he says, that, that we might, despite the fact that we have different shades of skin, different ethnic backgrounds, different professional and academic and, and, and recreational interests, in Christ, we're brothers and sisters of family that we might know peace. And he gives us his spirit as a 
measure of, of his a promise to sanctify us to the end. He is the guarantee of our future inheritance, the comforter, the one who prays for us, interceding on our behalf when we can't even formulate the words. Do we appropriate this? Because grace is the basis of peace. And third, we see the means of peace. We see it here in verse 17. Why is it a big deal that Paul communicate that this letter is authentic? Well, because they've been receiving some letters that weren't authentic. But why is it important to know the authentic letter of Paul? Because Jesus in John 17, 17 has tied inseparably our sanctification with the word of God. And so, Christian, if you are to grow, if you are to experience the peace, then you must have the word. And Paul wants his readers to know this is legit. The word of God is essential, brothers and sisters. It's living. It is active. And so when we gather together, we read the word. We proclaim the word. We celebrate the risen word. We pray the word. We sing the word. And in fact, when we do the sacraments, we see the word. The word, brothers and sisters, manifest amongst us in our fellowship. It's how we learn to put to death the old person and live in light of the new. It's how we learn to say no to the false promises of the devil and yes to the sure and certain promises of our Savior. So brothers and sisters, if you're struggling, soak up the word. Sing it, pray it, meditate on it, the word. And the effect we see back up in verse 16, the first verse of these concluding verses, that we may at all times and in every way have peace. All times. Brothers and sisters, he's writing to a church where people have died. He's writing to a church that's beleaguered on all sides because the Jews in town hate him, and the Greco-Romans in town hate them. They're being marginalized economically, culturally, socially. Thessalonica is not a huge city like Houston. It was a big city of maybe 10,000 people, which is a lot different than two, than two and a half million. They're pressured. They've got false teaching. They've got to deal with discipline and all the hardships and disappointments of life. On top of it, that is a mountain of duress, is it not? And his word to them is that in every situation, 
whether they're coming at you with pitchforks and torches, whether you're struggling to make ends meet in your job, whether times are good, whether you've got someone in your church that's driving you nuts, whether your personal dreams don't seem to have been realized, whatever it may be, the Lord speaks into this. And he says, as he said to the storm, peace, be still. Brothers and sisters, do you know peace? It is my, my prayer that striving, that struggling would cease. That we would rest content, basking in the certainty of Christ's lordship for us. We are not ambivalent to the world around us. We're not detached. We're involved. But we're involved with the intimate conviction that not only does Jesus win in the end, but that his lordship extends to the present so that even the chaos is under his control. So I can have confidence not just in how I know it's going to turn out, but I can have stability and a calm, cool-headed confidence as I engage because even the stuff of the now is the means by which the end is reached. And so, brothers and sisters, it is my prayer for you. It is the apostles' prayer for you. It is the Lord Jesus' prayer for you that the Lord of peace himself would grant you peace at all times in every way. Let's pray.